Hey, music lovers, the Cannamom Show podcast in collaboration with Lambkin Guitars is giving away a custom-built, one-of-a-kind electric guitar built by Josh Lampkin. The solid one-piece hemp wood body includes a built-in glass bowl piece. Yeah, you heard me right. You can take a hit and then play a lick. Now's your chance to help the Cannamom Show crush cannabis stigma with your entry. Register for the Hemp Guitar Giveaway online at lampkinguitars.com. That's L-A-M-K-I-N guitars.com. The drawing will be part of a 420 celebration at the Goods Dispensary in Somerville, Massachusetts, where the guitar is on display for the month of April. But don't worry, you don't have to live in Mass or be present to win. Visit LampkinGuitars.com to scope out the Hemp Guitar giveaway details and entry form. You'll even find a video of what could be your guitar in action. L-A-M-K-I-N-Guitars.com If you're a cannabis business owner looking to expand into new markets and need guidance and support you can trust, consider Collateral Base a group that has done it before in multiple merit-based and limited market states. Collateral Base was founded by an experienced cannabis attorney with highly educated consultants with master's degrees and years of experience in the cannabis industry. The Collateral Base team is confident they know cannabis licensing better than any of their peers. And I encourage you to see for yourself. It just takes one phone call. If you're ready to expand your cannabis business into new limited markets, contact Collateral Base today at 309-306-1095. That's 309-306-1095. Or visit collateralbase.com. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to another episode of Everything is Personal. Today, we have a special guest with us, Mr. Spencer Bitchens, who's the author of Social Security Disability Revealed. And I'm making my fingers into like a shape that I'm uh, projecting. Yeah, because he's got that on his book. Uh, and we were just talking about visually impaired people. And I was like, just say the name of your book and you don't have to describe it. And he pointed out to me that there are possibly visually impaired people, some we need to be as descriptive as possible. Thanks for pointing that out and thanks for being on. Yeah, no problem. We wanted it to kind of look like a stamp, like a like the government stamping paperwork with a giant revealed across uh, on a diagonal. So that, that's kind of what we were going for with the Why don't you make it red there. then? Why don't you make the stamp red, man? It stands yeah. out. Like you stamp that red or something. It's a good point. Sometimes red can be hard to see. So we went with just regular black, but... It's a nice modern cover, and it says exactly what the book's about. It, it tells you why it's so hard to access Social Security disability benefits, all the barriers that get put up in your way, and also what you can do about that to try and give yourself the best chance of a successful disability claim. Got it. So I want to dive deeper in that and really learn and understand it because I know nothing about the subject. But before I do that, let, let's find out a little bit more about you. So where did you grow up? Yeah, I grew up in Florida and went to college and law school at Florida State University. And uh, then after law school, I took the bar, passed the bar in 2008, 
which for all of your listeners over the age of 30, they'll understand that was not a very good time to be entering the job market. And uh, it was no exception for lawyers. There, the people were being let go right and left. And so there was this large pool of legal talent and uh, not a lot of places to put them. And so that didn't make it particularly good for someone right out of law school. So, so no, not not to interrupt for a second, but just going back to uh, 2008. So this yeah. is where the stock market was crashing. So I'll, I'll tell you what I was doing in 2008. I was a commercial real estate broker. That doesn't sound like a good thing to have been doing <laughs> after 2008. You probably were doing really well before 2008. Yeah, before 2008, it was fine. But I was like, I had all these people. I couldn't get a financing for them. It was just dead. And I was selling non-performing notes. Uh, then I got into that because that's uh, shot into survival mode. And then you know, that, was, that was an interesting time. So I just want to uh, point out, this was an interesting time for those of you, as you said, uh, that are under the age of uh, 30, probably can't relate to. But yeah, it was a very, very difficult uh, uh, time. But before I even get into your your what you were doing, how you went, like, so what part of Florida did you uh, grow up in? Uh, West Coast, uh, just south of Tampa. South Tampa. You had uh, both parents, divorced, siblings. Like, I'm trying to get an idea of like your household. Yeah, I have a pretty small family and they're kind of spread around. Um, but uh, now I have a much bigger family because my wife has lots of siblings. So uh, it, it definitely expanded once I got married. Yeah. Um, well, I'm so an only I'm, child. I'm an only child. My mom is an only child. My dad has one brother. So I know what you mean about small family. We have cousins and stuff. So, But still, it's I definitely can relate. Uh, and you stayed in Florida throughout your education and all, all that. Correct? Well, yeah. Yeah. So I got in-state tuition for college at Florida State. And then everyone I know from law school went to a private school or out of state. Um, I was the only person that I knew who actually was able to stay in-state with in-state tuition for law school. And law school, not cheap. So having in-state tuition was, uh, was just turned out to be really good. But did you always want to be a lawyer? Like, was that was that something that you thought about when you were a kid, or do you have like other interests? Like, ah, I want to be a rock star. I want to be a race car driver. And I'm like, what? What? Well, why lawyer? Uh, I I don't know. Um, I I knew I didn't want to like go to medical school or become an accountant. There are a lot of things that that I had uh, eliminated, let's say, and lawyer wasn't on that list yet. So. Uh, I also wasn't sure I necessarily wanted to be like, uh, I wear a suit and tie and, you know, go to court every day kind of lawyer. Because there's there's a lot of different things you can do with a law degree. I mean, right now I'm an author promoting a book, right? So um, the, the I, I didn't really want to do the traditional like law firm and I work 60 hours to 80 hours a week till I become a partner. I knew I didn't want to do that. Uh so I actually originally wanted to go into uh, criminal law. Um, but as I said, it was really hard to enter the job market in 2008. And so I, I couldn't be very picky. And so I sort of bounced around getting whatever short-term projects I could until uh, finally one, I applying for everything. And then finally in 2010, one of my applications sticks and it was with social security. 
So lots of people ask me, oh, disability, that's fascinating. How did you end up with Social Security? And the answer is by complete accident. But so I had a friend of mine told me one time, when you finish law school, you can have, it's like a license to print money in a way. So you're absolutely right. And if you're not going to criminal law, uh, you don't have to go to court. Or like my, my friend who told me that, he's a sports agent. Mm-hmm. And I was working with lawyer sports agent has nothing to do with each other but it you know it does and i was working no a lot a lot lot of sports agents are lawyers exactly and then i was working with the as a a broker uh at that time i was working with a lot of attorneys who were doing real estate transactions for commercial so you don't have to like you know wear a suit and tie and go to court but if you were want to do criminal law then that i think that's your only option but i think what you're saying is that because the options were so limited, you're like, I'll just take whatever. And it so happened that you got connected to something that creates a really interesting niche. Like it's a unique type of niche, not just, you know, it's not tax law. It's not criminal law. It's, it's, incredible. Like criminal. it's very specific. Right. It? That's what I'm it's saying. Not it's, even just specific. Dis- it's not even disability. It's specifically social security disability. Right. But, that, but that's its own niche within the legal community. I mean, there are tens of thousands of social security disability lawyers around the country. And the reason is because there's over a million people who apply for social security every year, over 9 million beneficiaries at any one point in time, millions of people currently in the pipeline with pending cases. It's an absolutely enormous system. And that's why there are so many uh, social security disability lawyers, both working for the government and in the private sector. What what is like what's social security disability like? What does it entail? What does it mean? Because I, I don't I don't know anything about it. And that's totally normal, by the way, because as Americans, we're conditioned to hear social security and think that's something I get when I'm older. Right. Right. Pe- people call when people say my social security. They're referring to something they get after they stop working when they're 67 years old. And so actually, most people don't know there's a disability program. I was hired by Social Security to do disability. And when I applied for that job, I didn't know there was a disability program. Because for so many people, it's just not something we think about. Um, Until, of course, we need it. And a lot of people need it. But if you don't need it, the tax comes out of your paycheck. If you're self-employed, you pay a self-employment tax when you file your tax return. And you don't know really think about where that money goes. You know there's a Social Security fund and there's a Medicare fund. But those are things for older people, right? Um, but so what Social Security disability is, is think about it like your Social Security retirement but just earlier. Hmm. So you don't have to be full retirement age, 66, 67. The tax that you pay, the Social Security tax, does fund the retirement program, but that same tax funds the disability program. And the payment that you would get is the same for disability and for retirement. So it's really just like if you become disabled, it's sort of like we'll give you your retirement benefit now, earlier, while you're younger because you can't work, but not, it's not permanent. Social Security, even for the cases they approve, they do then go back and re-review those cases periodically to make sure that you're still disabled, that you still can't work, 
And if they find that that's not the case anymore, they'll cut you off. So it's not a permanent benefit. It's more like retirement, once it kicks in, you have it for the rest of your life. But social security disability, it's the same benefit, but it's thought to be more temporary just for now while you can't work until you're able to go back to work. So what qualifies a disability? What does it mean? Like, uh, you know, hey, I am just stressed. I can't go back to work. I got an accident. I got a on-the-job accident. How, how do I know it's a workman's comp versus right. social security? I, I like, okay, so it can be any medical impairment or combination of impairments. Could be back injury, you need to have knee surgery, HIV, uh, COPD, breathing impairment, mm-hmm. um, but also mental health, anxiety, depression. A lot of veterans uh, apply for Social Security benefits based on PTSD. Uh, and But there's also digestive impairments, uh, genitourinary impairments. Um, people can apply for any, any type of medical impairment or combination of impairments. And the definition for Social Security is a medical impairment or combination of impairments that prevents you from doing full-time work for at least 12 continuous months. So it has to be at least 12 months in the past or in the future or likely to result in death, something like terminal cancer. Right. Uh, and you have to be able to not do any full-time work that exists in significant numbers in the national economy. But if you think about it, that's a really hard thing to prove, right? Well, yeah, but but plus, I, I guess I guess I'm trying to figure out. Uh, and if I'm if I'm off base, just say like smack me around and say you're you're totally off. But like we have COVID, right? So now I'm sitting in my home office right now in my home studio recording this. I have an office too. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, if I have to travel every single day to my office and I'm impaired in some way and I can't do that. I can't work full time because I can't get to the office. I have this, I have that. But sitting at home, my couch. I mean, like, did it? Did the, the world just change and change for you too because of uh, you know, being able to work from home and have Zoom and have all these things? Right. But the Social Security regulations—it's the government, and they're really slow to update a lot of the the laws around Social Security the regulations, the policy. But also whether or not you can commute to work isn't taken into account for Social Security to determine if you're disabled. It's only whether once you're at work, can you do a job? Can you work 40 hours per week? And there's people have all kinds of different reasons why they have difficulty working. You might have a back injury and have difficulty lifting or standing. But you also may have a mental health impairment and have difficulty focusing, concentrating, getting along with others, adapting, managing, remembering instructions, carrying out your duties. And so there are all kinds of different ways that a combination of medical impairments can impair a person's ability to work. But in order to get Social Security benefits, you have to show the Social Security judge that you would be unable to do any full-time work for a full 12 months. And so, you know, let's say you were working in a warehouse and you were injured. Well, maybe you can't go back to working in a warehouse. Like you mentioned workman's comp, right? Let's say you have a worker's comp claim 
And the workers' comp doctor says, yeah, he can't go back to work in a warehouse. Well, you might be able to get workers' comp benefits then, but Social Security is going to not ask whether you can go back to the warehouse. They're going to say, can you do any job in the national economy? Could you go be a cashier? Could you sit down and be an eyeglasses repairer? That's a real job, by the way, that Social Security uses (laughs) to determine if someone's disabled. And if you can do a lighter duty job or a sedentary job, and if you can do that work on a full-time basis, even if you couldn't do the work you were doing before, then you're not disabled under Social Security's definition. So it's a really strict definition. So this work miscomplic, if if I'm uh, kind of going through my checklist and, you know, somebody, I won't use me because... I don't want to put it out in the universe. It'll come back to me and it's not yeah. actually happen. But uh, fictitious you know, somebody, person. Yeah, fictitious person. Somebody's uh, in, the, in a warehouse that you mentioned and uh, they had an accident. Some falls in their foot. They break their foot. They have they have a whole thing and uh, they, they apply, they qualify for workman's comp, I'm, I'm assuming, in, in that case. Do you first check off, okay, workman's comp first or is it in parallel? Then you say workman's comp and plus... And I, I'm going to add a caveat to that. I, I'm super, I have a lot of anxiety because going back to this work uh, in this warehouse, it actually triggered my PTSD predisposition. Right. So now, yes, physically, you're right. Physically, I can repair eyeglasses in this. Uh, but every single time I go there, I have this accent that replays in my head again because I have a predisposition to PTSD. And it triggered that trauma for me. And now I'm having anxiety over even thinking about going that place. Is that a qualifying condition? Yeah. Well, any condition or combination of conditions can be a qualifying condition. To answer your first question, they're separate programs, whether it's workman's comp and social security or private disability policy and social security, or even two government programs such as VA benefits and social security. Mm-hmm. They're completely separate, and usually the workman's comp case happens quicker, or a VA case will happen first, and then the person will go later and file for Social Security. So when I was working for Social Security, I would see VA or workman's comp claims and the evidence for those claims because that had already happened. So it could possibly, they could happen at the same time. But just practically speaking, what happens is someone will go do workman's comp because that happens immediately. And a lot of times, even if they're approved, it's when that money runs out that they go to unemployment or Social Security. Um, and now to get to the, the other issue is, yes, it's actually very common for people to develop some kind of physical impairment first and then... I got PTSD. I, I'm scared about going back to that environment. I've also just got anxiety because I can't work. I, I might lose my home. I can't pay my bills. Uh, and, and that just causes a lot of anxiety and depression. And like you said, maybe there's also PTSD. And so the way mental health impairments are handled is similar to the way physical impairments are handled in that it's all based on medical evidence. So the agency would have you see a psychiatrist or psychologist, and maybe you're also getting treatment for mental health and the agency can look at those records. And that person, that source would probably say, talk to you about your PTSD. Well, why is that happening? And if you said, 
well, you know, I was in the military and I heard a bang. And now whenever I go anywhere outside my house, I get scared. That's different from, I'm afraid if I go back to the warehouse, something's going to fall on my foot again. Right. Because if that's what you say, then social security is going to say, okay, but what's to prevent you from going to a, an office job where nothing's going to fall on you? Right. So if you're, if your mental health symptoms prevent you from going back to the warehouse, but wouldn't prevent you from doing other work in the national economy, you're not disabled. But if, on the other hand, a psychiatrist or psychologist says, well, I evaluated this person and I'm determining that after this incident, anytime they leave their home, they're having mental health uh, symptoms. So that's called agoraphobia when you just have all kinds of problems whenever you leave your home then maybe that would result in a finding of disability because that could prevent someone from doing any work. But there's one other thing I want to point out that I heard in there, and maybe you didn't even know you said it, but you did say a broken foot, right? As soon as I hear a fracture, I think about the definition of disability that you have to show that you would be unable to do work for 12 continuous months. Now, Lots of fractures heal in six or eight weeks. And so maybe that wouldn't even be evidence that the person would be unable to work for a full 12 months. So those are all things that someone working for Social Security takes into account when deciding if you could go back to the warehouse job or do any other work. So so uh, the doctors and the people who evaluate, are they specific to Social Security? Like the, it's... You can't go to your doctors. Like they assign you, and there's a there's a, probably a list, right, of these medical professionals that do the assessment. And these are the only ones you can go to. Is that kind of how it works? Uh, well, it's both. So Social Security will take any treatment records you have, uh, evaluations, tests, even medical opinions from your treating sources. And that's actually considered really good evidence because who knows you best? Your own doctor especially if you've been seeing that doctor for a long period of time. That person knows you a lot better than someone you've seen for 10 minutes. But Social Security will also, in almost every circumstance, send you to their own doctor. And the reason is your doctor knows you, might want to really help you out, and maybe so maybe there's a little bias, right? So what they're doing is they're also sending you to see what's called a consultative examiner, and Social Security pays for that. And yeah, there's a list of people and they'll send you to someone in your neighborhood or at least in your community. Uh, and that person could be a, a medical doctor if it's a physical impairment or a mental health professional like a psychiatrist or psychologist if it's mental health. And they're trying to see, like, can we confirm what your treatment doctor, treating doctor is saying? Is there consistency between this evidence here and this evidence here? Uh, the other thing is there's also um, third-party sources such as other independent medical sources, like if you had a workman's comp claim and the workman's comp doctor might have said something. Well, that person's not hired by Social Security and they're not your treating doctor, but that could be really good evidence of that physical injury in the warehouse that happened to our unfortunate friend a few minutes ago, right? So Social Security can also look at that kind of independent evidence or evidence from the VA, or if it's before you were discharged from the military, your military treatment records. Some people are incarcerated, so we can get 
jail and prison records and look at those medical records. And wait, wait, you, know, you can get you can get social security benefits if you're incarcerated. Uh, oh, you mean they were incarcerated? Yeah. So let's say you were okay. incarcarcerated, okay, then you're re- released. Well, you were getting treat. The only place you could get treatment is when you were incarcerated, right? And sometimes people who are incarcerated are sent to a hospital, or sometimes it's just the clinic at the jail or prison. And there's doctors working there. Those are licensed physicians, right? So that's medical evidence, just like anything else. So Social Security will get all the medical evidence they can get. And that's what the judge and the staff attorneys do is we aggregate all that. And we look at it over time, we compare things and we see is there consistency. But if, you know, this doctor says one thing and this doctor says something completely different, eh, maybe we're not really sure what you can and can't do. And that's when you have to start weighing, which is the more persuasive evidence. You brought up an example. I'm going to kind of uh, dig into a little bit more. So let's say the VA. Uh, we deal with a lot of veterans in our, in our business. And, you know, veterans can have a physical condition and mm-hmm. it can be exacerbated mental condition, et cetera. Are there like pre-existing things that will prevent you from having uh, qualified uh, for qualifying for social security benefits. Like um, if you are in the VA being treated, but you're also consuming cannabis, let's say uh, to help you with your uh, PTSD, which in the state that you reside, you're in Florida, right? So in Florida, it's legal by prescription. Most recently uh, I was living in Washington state and it, for the last eight years, you haven't even needed a prescription. You just right, walk right. into a store uh, and buy it. Right. I'm in California, so it's the uh, same, same kind of thing. But I was just curious because if, you know, your doctor says, hey, I recommend cannabis to help you with X, Y, and Z, whatever, your ADHD, since we're bringing that up, or your, uh, your PTSD. But then you go apply for Social Security benefits. Are you disqualified because you're consuming it's a, cannabis? It, it's a great question. And there's a, a chapter in the book, one whole chapter devoted just to uh, drug use and alcoholism mm-hmm. because it is really complicated and it's gotten more complicated in the last 10 years. So the law governing drug abuse and alcoholism, and that's the term that social security uses drug abuse and alcoholism. So that's a term right out of the law. That law uh, dates from 1996 and was signed into law by president Clinton And this is still in the war on drugs, drugs are bad period of time. And it's a federal law. And even though Social Security's guidance on how to apply it has been changed over time, that law has not been repealed by Congress. So the Social Security Administration and the Social Security judges still have to apply the drug abuse and alcoholism law. And it's important to note that that's a federal law because, of course, cannabis is still illegal under federal law. But at the same time, we now have a situation where in the majority of states, it's been legalized, at least for medicinal use. And I don't know how many states we're at currently, but it's a lot of states where you don't even need a prescription anymore. You just go into a store and buy it, like Washington, Oregon, and California. So... I was writing decisions for judges uh, in the state of Washington. And even though those are social security judges, they work for social security, 
They're federal judges. They know that cannabis is not legal federally. They also know that they are living in the state of Washington and seeing uh, claimants in the state of Washington. And they're well aware that those people are completely legally under state law able to buy and use the product. And the other thing is something that you pointed out. For so many people, it's medicine. It, whether you, it, it, you may not need a prescription, but you don't need a prescription for Tylenol either, right? right? So in the book, I like to use the same term that we use for Tylenol. I like to call it over the counter. That's basically what we have in a lot of states like Washington and California is essentially it's over the counter cannabis. You go into a store, you show them your ID, uh, just like you have to do for Sudafed and Walgreens, and you can buy cannabis and use it to treat your pain, your anxiety, etc. So on the one hand, the law is really quite harsh because if you're using drugs or alcohol and that's what causes you to be disabled, you can be disqualified from Social Security disability benefits. On the other hand, the judges, even the judges that I would think would be the least sympathetic to someone using substances. Even those judges understand cannabis is different. It's not meth. It's not heroin. Um, so so is that a decision? Out. So is that like an arbitrary, I guess I'm trying to figure out, is that a decision that the judge makes arbitrarily? Because there's a couple of things that, once again, not a, not a, an attorney, so I'll defer to you in a couple of things. But yeah. you have, you're absolutely right. It's still a Schedule One. So federally, federal law applies. Under the original coal memo that was put out, the federal government said the states uh, supersede federal when it comes to whatever state decisions. However, this is a federal program. So now it doesn't supersede the federal program. But you also have so many different, like, what does it even mean? You said drug abuse, right? Yeah. So it's drug. So what does that even mean if my friend next to me is smoking a joint and somehow through secondhand, I get some of that THC and it goes into my blood uh, and, and I turn up positive in a blood test. Am I disqualified? Or mm-hmm. I'll give you another. Uh, we have this hemp act, right? So CBD is basically acceptable and legal to sell in most of the states uh, under the hemp act. Uh, it's supposed to be 0.3% THC or less. 0.3% THC less, not zero THC. So if 0.3% THC shows in my blood uh, a test, what does that mean? Am I a user, abuser, but I'm consuming something legal under the Hemp Act? Uh, so it's so confusing. I'm trying to figure out if it's at the discretion of the judge, then you're sort of this person has a personal situation with the, so they make a decision based on something they think themselves and the law is is really hard to apply to the situation, as you said. So I'm trying to kind of figure out how the, those decisions are made. Right. So I, don't, I wouldn't say it's at the discretion of the judge because there is uh, guidance that the agency gives the judges and the judges follow a procedure to determine if they're going to disqualify you for using drugs or alcohol. And as I was saying a moment ago, even the harshest judges understand the cannabis is different from other drugs and also from alcohol. And the reason is, I don't know that anyone uses alcohol 
to medicate themselves. They could say, I'm using alcohol as medication, but I think you, you could say that's alcoholism. Whereas we know scientifically cannabis has properties that actually mean it, it's not just, it's not just cannabisism, right? Where you're addicted. It can actually literally reduce pain, reduce anxiety and make you feel better. And so the judges understand this difference. And so the standard in the law is if the substance you're using, in this case, cannabis is the reason you are disabled and unable to work then you you should be found not disabled. But if there's another reason, even if you're using substances, and this applies to heroin or meth or alcohol, if there's another reason that is the reason you cannot work and the substance abuse is secondary, then you don't get disqualified from benefits. So I'll give you an example. Let's say uh, you are an alcoholic and you are using alcohol and you say, I can't work because I can't show up at work on time. Well, they're going to disqualify you because alcohol is the reason you can't work. But if you drink for 30 years and you destroy your liver and you're now having tremendous pain and symptoms from cirrhosis, and that's what's causing you to be unable to work, even if you're still drinking, you can be found disabled because of the liver disease not the alcohol use. And I actually talk about uh, even though the liver even though the alcohol caused the liver disease. You can literally destroy your own body and if that is if if the destroyed body is now the reason you can't work, you can qualify for disability benefits because the alcohol use at that point in time is not what's causing you to be disabled. I talk about this in the book, but I also explain that like no one would ever actually do that, right? You're not going to destroy your body for a thousand bucks a month in disability benefits because the treatment you would need at that point far exceeds what you could get in disability benefits. So I explained that that's like, in theory, that could happen, but no one's actually doing that intentionally. But there could be people who have an alcohol addiction where that is happening, even though it wasn't their intent. But going back to cannabis, so the way that the judges deal with cannabis is they'll ask, why are you using cannabis? And if you have evidence of physical impairments, look, judge, you can see that five years ago I hurt my knee or something fell on my foot in a warehouse. I had surgery. I went to physical therapy. It never quite healed right. I use cannabis and it reduces my pain. Well, now you're not using cannabis to make yourself disabled. Actually, the cannabis use is to try and make yourself less disabled, right? To try to reduce your pain so you could maybe theoretically try and go back to work. And when the judges see that you're using a substance, but you're using it as a way to medicate so maybe you could try and go back to work, it provides a lot of credibility to your allegations when you say, I can't work. I'm trying. I'm doing everything I can. I'm doing my best, but I can't work because of the injury or the anxiety, depression. That's why I can't work. The cannabis use is secondary. And once the judge decides, okay, yes, you're using cannabis, but that's not what's preventing you from working. So then you can be found eligible for social security disability benefits. So, so cannabis has to be used as a therapeutic, like there's a therapeutic use for cannabis. I can't just say, um, 
I like to come home from work and I, I'm not a drinker. I don't like alcohol. So to help take the edge off, I consume a little bit of cannabis. That's not uh, something the judge would probably uh, connect to and say, it's I'm going to slight- feel better. I'm going to slightly tweak your example because yeah, yeah. if you're working full time, you would have to be applying for social security disability. Well, no, this is but, what you were doing. I'm just saying this is what you were doing forever, and now you get injured, but you continue doing the same thing. That, well, well, let's let's say you can work part time, and okay. you can only work a few hours a day, so it's not full time work, and and you can only work three hours a day, a couple days a week, and then you're in so much pain, you got to come home, and you're pain, and you're you're anxious, and you don't like going to work, and it's hard. And you want to come home and just use cannabis to relax, right? Yeah. So the judge will ask the same question, whether it's cannabis or another substance or alcohol. It's the same question is, what is the reason you are disabled and unable to work? The reason you're disabled and unable to work is the knee injury, the back injury, a lung issue, uh, your anxiety or depression. It's still not the substance abuse. The way that people get disqualified based on substance abuse is when their other impairments are not significant enough to prevent them from working, but then they're also using substances. And a doctor says, if this person weren't, and usually a lot of times this is an emergency room doctor because people will overdose and they'll end up in the emergency room a lot. And so sometimes the doctor will say, if this person wasn't using the substance, they'd be able to do a full-time work schedule. So you might have a, a, back, a mild back injury or you might have asthma or some other impairment that wouldn't prevent you from working. It's just a medical condition, but it's not going to prevent you from working. But you're, you're heavily using alcohol or you're heavily using something like meth or heroin. And that's what's causing you to like end up in the ER and so you can't, you wouldn't be able to go to work full time. That's the situation where the judge would say, the reason you, you can't go to work full time isn't your back or your asthma. It's that you keep overdosing. Now, because the substance use is the reason you can't work, now we're going to apply that drug abuse and alcoholism law and find you not disabled. How would they know that they are you forced to take like a full drug panel when you apply to social security benefits, or is that something you have to volunteer as information? Um, it, you don't take a drug panel, but there are a couple ways it comes up. One is people volunteer it either, uh, in, uh, the hearing with the judge or in their application documents, because you fill those out under penalty of perjury. People, it's not a good idea to lie. It's better to say, yeah, I was using substances or I am using substances and here's why I'm using them. You should never lie. Got it. The other thing is sometimes when someone's sent to see a doctor, that, that consultative examiner we talked about earlier, the social security will send you to see, that person will, will ask you, that's a doctor, they're doing a medical evaluation and whether it's physical or mental health, that person might say, you know, a lot of times doctors will ask, tell me if you're using any of these substances. There's checkboxes, right? And you don't want to lie to the doctors either. If a judge, social security judge, catches you in a lie, any point in the process, you've lost all credibility with your allegation of disability. But there's a third place that they find this, and, and this is the most common place, is not necessarily that you were asked about it, but that it just comes up. Like there's an ER record 
And what's the first thing when you get into the ER? The first thing they do is put an IV in you. And in most cases, whether you're there for a mental health reason or a physical reason, almost always the second thing they're going to do is a giant blood pen, CBC, a chemistry, and there's a tox screen on there because they don't know who's using and who isn't in the ER. And they need to make sure that they're treating the reason you're there and then they're not giving you something that could kill you. So they need to know what's in your body. And so a lot of times... You know, someone goes to the ER for that person in the warehouse. Something fell on their foot. Their boss said, go to the ER and get an x-ray. While they were in the ER, there was a blood panel run. And it was just, you know, they found out that there was heroin in your system. Well, you can't, you can't deny that, right? That's now in your medical records and the judge is going to ask you about it. So a lot of times that's where it comes up. It just... It comes up in, a, in one of your medical records, and it wasn't necessarily something that you volunteered, but it was discovered by one of your treating sources. Well, I, I can clearly see, I mean, why an attorney is super important in this. I mean, there's so many variables uh, about, you know, what's right, what, what's wrong. Even like, even what you just said about ER visits, uh, you know, I was in the impression you're protected under HIPAA. And if that's the case, do you have the right to subpoena those medical records? Or I can just say, you don't, you don't have to disclose that information. Of, co- of course you're protected under HIPAA. Social security has no right to get your medical records until you file a social security disability claim, uh-huh. right? When you file a social security disability claim, you're, you're claiming a government benefit. Well, now you're telling social security, I am medically disabled. Well, Social Security has to make that determination. So you're you're waiving. You you have to fill out a form to waive your HIPAA rights so the Social Security can get that evidence. And if you don't do that, Social Security is going to say you're not cooperating with our medical investigation. We're just going to deny your claim for non-cooperation. So yeah, no one has the right to see your your ER visits. But if you're going to ask the government for a government benefit where there's a medical determination, the government's, you know, going to want to see your medical evidence so they can make that determination. Yeah. You waived your HIPAA rights. Uh, you just said that that's, yeah. that makes sense. Uh, I had, you kind of said this already, I think, but I'm going to ask another hypothetical smokers, right? Smoking cigarettes. I love that you went <laughs> into this because I talk about it in the book and I know right, what you're so going to say. I'm not going to ask the question. Uh, so I, you, you talk about what you wrote in the book, but the only question I'm going to ask is you, you sort of alluded to the amount of benefit that you get, right? Mm-hmm. A thousand or so. If you can just expand on the amount that you get or the different tiers and levels and talk to me about uh, smoking cigarettes. Yeah, I definitely want to talk about smoking because it's a drug abuse and alcoholism law and it was passed in the 90s. This is a time when the tobacco companies had not yet admitted that their product was a problem. And their number one competitor is and still was cannabis. There's also a lot of members of Congress from the South. So it will probably come as no surprise to you that tobacco is not covered by the drug abuse and alcoholism law. (laughs) If it was, you could smoke, destroy your lungs. And at that point, the judge would say, well, now it's your destroyed lungs that are the reason for your disability, not the 
current smoking, right? That's the, similar to the alcohol uh, and liver example from earlier. But because smoking is not even covered under that law, the judge does not even get into that analysis. You, you can smoke, destroy your lungs, continue smoking, walk into the hearing with a cigarette in hand, and there is no drug abuse. It's not covered. Smoking does not count as drug abuse. Is it any wonder why? I mean, again, lots of members of well, Congress. Well, has anybody out. revisited it? Like, has, has this been revisited? I mean, you said well, the 90s. Like, There's still a lot of members of Congress from the South where they still grow tobacco. So, well, Mitch McConnell, like he was the main sponsor of the Hemp Act. And it made sense when I was in Ken- saw Kentucky. I'm like, all right, you know, they're converting tobacco fields to hemp, which mm-hmm. was now they're going backwards. It used to be hemp to tobacco. Now that it's coming back and there's an R.G. Reynolds sign and one of the uh, water things. So it, it was obvious to me. And I understand they either want to tax, uh, you know, hemp because it's a cash crop uh, and, you know, distributed in, in Kentucky's for that. And that's when Mitch McConnell was anti-cannabis, but he's pro-hemp, which makes makes no sense. Uh, follow the money, follow the money, yeah. kind of all the way but, through. But here's the thing: I I get what you're saying. Like, well, does Congress should Congress add smoking to the DNA law? Mm-hmm. But the thing is, they kind of don't need to. And the reason is, in the same way, the judges can ask you why you're using cannabis, understand that it's not the reason you're disabled, and and say, okay. Even under the DNA law, it's not the cannabis that's causing the disability, so I'm still going to find you disabled. They can kind of do the exact flip of that with smoking and say, this isn't covered by the DNA law, but every single one of your doctors recommended that you stop smoking, and you didn't. That's called failure to follow medical advice. And the judge, so even though the DNA law doesn't apply, the judge can say, based on failure to follow medical advice, I find you not a non-credible witness and therefore your claims of disability are not credible. You're not doing the things the doctors are telling you to do to get better. I'm going to deny your disability claim. So even though it's not covered under the DNA law, judges don't, as you can imagine, they don't like to see someone coming in alleging emphysema and COPD, and continuing to smoke. Judges do not like approving that kind of claim. They can, but they could also say, there's also a method, an avenue there to not approve that claim. As far as your other question about benefit levels, the the amount of benefits that you get from Social Security disability all depends on your lifetime earnings and the taxes that you paid into the system. So that's different for every person. But you can go onto mysocialsecurity.gov, create an account, and then log in, and it will tell you, if you become disabled today, you would get this amount per month. And, uh, and so, like I said, that amount's different from every person based on your lifetime earnings. Younger workers will probably have a lower amount just because they haven't paid in as long. Someone in their 50s who has been making $100,000 a year for many years will have a much higher number. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's individualized to each person, but, but that's the amount that you, if you also, if you were to become 67 today and go into retirement, that would also be your retirement figure, Got it. but yeah, it won't be sense. your retire. but it won't be your retirement figure. If you keep working and earning and paying into the system, that number will steadily go up over time. 
Yeah, what you said makes total sense. Uh, and you can see how much you uh, make based on uh, what you contribute into the system. One thing I want to say about something you mentioned, which is having a representative, whether you hire an attorney or a non-attorney representative, it's crucial. I wrote almost 2,000 decisions for Social Security judges, and I saw a lot of cases where people were not represented by a professional. And you can just tell when you read those cases, the medical evidence is sparse. It's not well-developed. They don't have the right tests. The medical opinions aren't written correctly. And you, not that there aren't some not great representatives, you have some representatives who are better than others, but overall having a representative just puts you in such a better position because they're legal professionals and this is a legal process and they know what they're doing. And just taking, for example, the DANA law, as I said, you should never lie to social security, especially because you're filling these things out under oath. And if you lie and get caught, it's a basically automatic denial. So don't lie. And you don't need to lie. You can say, here are the substances I've been using and when. And as we've been talking about today, a social security disability representative can ask you why you're using them and can put together a story to present to the judge. Yes, your honor, he's been using alcohol and cannabis, but here's the impairments that actually prevent him from working. And here's why he was using those substances and and pre present that in a way to meet the legal requirements so that you can still be found disabled. And that's just, of course, one example of all of the different complexities of the social security rules and procedures. And you want to have a legal professional on your side who knows what they're doing, who knows those procedures. Like I, I like to say, if you wouldn't fill your own cavities and you wouldn't do your own surgery, like why would you handle your own legal proceeding? It, Leave it to because a professional. People, people have issues with the uh, lawyers as you know, oh, you know, they're just blood. But you just made it so clear, the complexity of this thing. And I just want to clear up one thing. When I was talking about, you know, uh, cigarettes, my whole thing is not to add cigarettes to the list. Let's just get rid of the list. Yeah. Let's get rid of the entire list. Drugs. Who's there to determine what is schedule one schedule? It doesn't make any sense. All that list is arbitrary because it's not even the drug itself. It's the drugs that are inside our bodies that are being released. That's just a catalyst for that drug. So I never right. understood any, like, yeah. let's keep making more and more. Why is laws. cannabis on this list when it has medicinal properties, but sugar but sugar is not on the list. That's a whole other podcast, brother. Right? We, we can talk about this for another hour. Yeah. Why cannabis on this so, list? So, so, I agree with, so I agree with you. Um, it would make sense to get rid of the list, especially since we now know that let's say you're only using alcohol and you have no other medical impairments. It's just alcohol addiction. Well, we now know that that is an addiction. It is a mental health impairment in and of itself. But yeah, this law was passed back when we separated out anxiety and depression. Those are real mental health impairments. From alcohol, well, that's not a real mental health impairment. But now that we know it is, we really probably should just, it takes Congress, right? Congress is going to have to act to repeal that law and just say, look, even if you are using substances, and even if that's the specific reason that you can't work, that's most likely an addiction. And let's recognize that as a health problem 
and get you the health care that you need. And if you're found disabled, you can get Medicare before. You, you, there's no age limit on Medicare. I know someone who's in his early 30s on Medicare because he's been found disabled. And so let's find you disabled, get you the Medicare you need, get you the treatment so that you can go back to work and work for another 30 years. So yeah, it's a no-brainer from a health standpoint, from a legal standpoint, and just from a financial standpoint for the country. Because if we can take someone who's an addict at 30, and by 35, if we can help that person to not be addicted anymore, and they can work 30 and pay taxes into the system for 30 more years, then that was an investment. For sure, they're a contributor. They're a contributor to society, and, and Congress isn't going to repeal anything for the time being because uh, there's. You already said there's tobacco, there's alcohol, there's pharma. You know why would they? They don't need to do that because uh, pharma's got some monopoly on some. Well, of these, uh, just as we close here, that's where I actually have some hope that they might be willing to repeal this because the the cannabis industry is becoming much larger, and we know the alcohol industry is already quite large. And these are special interests that maybe want to say to Congress, let's not penalize people for using our products, please. Let's let people use our products. And most people won't have a health issue. And if some people do have a health issue, we'll get them the health care they need. But that person would have had a, a, an addiction issue if with our product or a different product. The, the problem is their health needs. Let's get them the health care they need. But let's. But in order to get them that healthcare through Medicare, they have to be found disabled first, right? Yeah. So because there's so much tobacco, or not tobacco, cannabis is so big, and alcohol is so big, and farm is so big. That's where I'm hoping that maybe there might be some pressure on Congress to get rid of this old and stale 26 year old law, and not necessarily penalize people for what we now know is a mental health impairment. Right. Yeah, I hope so. I hope you're right. Uh, what are your personal feelings uh, on cannabis or, or are you a consumer? Uh, so I lived in the state of Washington and we're obviously, you know, we have stores that sell more than just things you can smoke. Um, for any of your listeners who live in other states, you can buy edibles, you can buy drinks, you can buy... Uh, I, I know someone who really enjoyed the, I was going to say bath salts, but that's its own separate drug, right? No, but these are actual bath salts that you would put like it, in a bubble bath. bath bombs. Yeah. Ba bath, bath bombs. Bath, bath, stuff, yeah. yeah. Fizzies that you put in the bath and you can get in the bath and it, and it, it helps you relax and it's got THC in it. And yeah, so there's all kinds of different products that are really good and really helpful for people. And as that industry just gets bigger and bigger and bigger, that's where I could see some pressure put on Social Security on our members of Congress. And I just don't think there's a whole lot of pressure on the other side. I'm just, I'm not sure there would be a lot of pressure on members of Congress to keep that law. And so when you have pressure from one side and not the other, that's where I have some hope that maybe, um, maybe we might be able to get rid of it. Um, but yeah, the, there's a whole chapter on this drug and alcohol issue. But there are so many other ways in, in my book, Social Security Disability Revealed, that I will, if you're thinking about doing this process on your own, I am thoroughly hoping that I have done a really good job at scaring you enough into knowing that you should not do that. Because the two big themes of my book are, 
You really should be an educated claimant. So you know the process, you know where the hurdles are going to be, and you know how to get around them. But also you should have a legal professional because you don't know everything and you need to know how to set up your own medical evidence, what to say to your doctors, what evidence to get from your doctors, which doctors to see. But of course, you need a professional helping you prepare your case and present your case to the judge. And throughout this whole book, I go through all of the different reasons why it's a terrible idea to try and represent yourself. So there's a lot you can do yourself, but then there's a lot that you really do need to just leave to a legal professional to help you through this process. Uh, Spencer, if people want to get in touch with you, get the book, uh, you know, engage you for your services, how do people get in touch with you? The best way to find us is at missionspublishing.com. That's B-I-S-H-I-N-S publishing.com. And we have links to all the different places to buy the book in both paperback and ebook form, Amazon, Barnes Noble, bookshop.org. You can also ask your local library to carry it in paperback or ebook. We also have a description of the book, all the topics, and the table of contents. So you can look through and see is this book going to give me the information that I think I need uh, for my disability claim? And there's also a way to contact us if you have any questions. Uh, man, I, I, I kind of was going through, I'm like, social security, uh, disability benefits. How do we make this interesting? And I'm telling you, man, you, you, you it's really so did. boring, I, right? The government is <laughs> I just thought it was so, so boring, boring man, yeah. but you really made it interesting. I, I really enjoyed our conversation. I learned a lot. That's all it's about. I just want to, I want to learn because I'm super, I, I hate, hate, hate studying, but right. I love learning. And by this, you just yeah. enlighten me, man. So and a lot, a lot of the government can be boring. So I've tried to take all the boring, confusing legal talk and break it down into what I call normal person English. And I provide examples. And yeah, this is something that it's, it's one of those topics that doesn't affect you until one day you can't go to work and then it impacts you. For sure. And, and we all have the same impairment impacting us, and it's called aging. So even if you don't have any other impairments, at some point, aging will get to you in one way or another, and probably something will happen at some point along the line that will make it difficult to work. Yeah, yeah. Well, so- I, the last last statement on, on that note, uh, David Sinclair, the, the PhD scientist in Harvard who's studying aging, he actually is lobbying to consider aging an actual dis-ease something that we can reverse and something we can address. So the aging at some point will be a condition like a disease of aging and things that you can do. So I completely agree and concur. Uh, Spencer, thank you so much for being on. I really appreciate it. And uh, you know, thanks for sharing that information. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Season one of Dope History is now available at dopehistory.com. Dope History weaves you through the lives of those who have been touched by cannabis or have had an influence on the events that shaped our laws or relationships with this plant. You'll hear tales from Frenchie Cannoli, Keith Strop, Eddie Lepp, Tom Alexander, Ed Rosenthal, Wolf Seagull, Jorge Cervantes, and Tommy Chong. Available now at dopehistory.com.